Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the text that uh, we uh, read together this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. We are coming to the end of our year, and we are also coming to the end of our series that we have been uh, working through in the book of Ephesians when Pastor Jason uh, moved and uh, went up to uh, Minnesota he asked me, hey, before you start a different series, would you mind finishing the series that I was in? And uh, I said, well, what was the series? And he said, well, it's the book of Ephesians. And I was like, that's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And so I'd be happy to do that. And that's what we've been doing for the last number of months. And uh, for the last number of weeks, we have been looking at this marvelous section where uh, God gives us instruction on spiritual warfare, how to win the war for our souls. And so what I want to do as we come now to sort of wrap up what he's saying here in this last little section is I want to give you some context. I I found it helpful in my own life and in my own ministry coming to a text like this to make sure that I'm constantly reviewing the context behind what Paul is saying. Because every time I go back and review that context, it's like I discover another layer to it, or, or there's another light bulb that sort of goes off. And, and so over the weeks that I've been preparing these messages, it's like God has been building layer upon layer a deeper understanding of what exactly is going on in this armor of God that he's been talking about. And so I've tried to do that throughout our series. I've tried to give you the contextual background and I've tried to bring you into some of that, and I want to do that uh, this morning. And so let me just remind you of a few things that you already know, and I want to put them before you so that uh, we, we catch the, the impetus and the impact of what the Apostle Paul is doing in these last three verses in this little section. As you have recalled, and as we've seen together, Ephesians is a book in which the Apostle Paul is disclosing something. He is revealing something that God has kept hidden up to this point. There is a divine mystery that that God has now revealed to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is making that mystery known. This is not a new thing that God is up to, but it's been a hidden thing. God has been at work on this since Genesis chapter 3, and he has not been telling you everything that he's been doing behind the scenes. He has veiled that, and that's what a biblical mystery is. A biblical mystery, as we saw, is actually a divine secret. It is something that God has been keeping back, even though he's been moving it forward. And so by the time we get to the Ephesian letter, The Apostle Paul has received information from God about that secret, and and he is now telling us what that secret is. That secret is a stunning plan that God the Father is accomplishing through the work of God the Son, and it is being applied, it is being secured, it is being preserved and protected by God the Spirit. So whatever this plan is, every member of the Godhead is involved in it. So this is a stunning plan. And and so Paul says, let me tell you about the plan 
And, and here's the plan. It, it has a cosmic scope. This isn't just a plan for you and me. This is not just God saying, look, uh, Sam Horn or Beth Horn or any one of us need redemption. We do need redemption individually, and God is so gracious to give that to us. But the plan is so much bigger than what is going on in our little world and in our little life. This is a cosmic plan. And so Paul says, let me tell you what the plan is. And, and, and so he, he kind of gives it to you in three parts. Part number one is this. God is at work to restore all fallen creation to its former splendor before the curse. This plan that God has been at work accomplishing through Christ and through the ministry of the Spirit is to restore this broken world that is under the curse to its former glory. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, when we read that God is, through Messiah, going to sum up. He's going to regather. He's going to restore everything on earth. And so the first part of the plan is, is global. God is on a mission to redeem and restore everything in fallen creation to its former glory. And then Paul says this, it's not just that. That's part number one. The second part of the plan is much bigger. It's universal. It's not just that God is trying to restore the fallen creation, earth, to its former glory. He is trying to put everything right in the universe. He is going to do this not just on the planet. He's going to do this in the cosmos. Everything in the universe, everything in the heavenly realm is going to be restored to the beautiful condition in which it was created and for which it was created before the fall of Satan. So Paul is referencing two big falls, the fall of Satan in heaven and the fall of Satan, uh, I'm sorry, the fall of Adam on earth, and he is restoring both realms to their former glory through the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, and through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing plan. And then Paul says, now, just so that you know that God is actually doing this, the first part of that plan is already in play, and that is this. God is redeeming and restoring fallen people, and he is bringing them into this new creation. And he is taking away everything that stands in the way of them having a right relationship with him and living joyfully before him. He's taking everything out of the way that would stand in the way of them having received the full blessings that, that Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 3. So, Here are the three things that Paul's talking about. God is going to restore the earth to its former glory. He's going to restore heaven to its former condition. And he is already restoring a people for his glory who have have been made righteous, who have been taken out of those that were near, the Jews, and taken uh, out of those that were far off. And they have been made into one new creation called the church. And he has commissioned those people to live for him. And that's why, beginning in chapter 4 and going through chapter 5, you have these statements about walking. Walk worthy of your calling. Here's how, here's how you walk in church and here's, as a church. Here's how you walk when you're out in the pagan world. Here's how you walk in love. Here's how you walk as light. Here's how you walk in wisdom. 
And the reason that walk is so important is revealed in chapter 6, verse 10. And that is this, because all of those people who have been set free from the kingdom of darkness and have been made light have a mission. They are to take this shalom. That's the word for all of this. I mean, if you want one word to sum all that we've been talking about up, it's the word shalom. It's the idea that God is going to restore everything so that it will be exactly as it should be. Just the way it was in Genesis chapter 1, at the end of every creation day, God looked and God saw, and what he had done was good. And the idea of good there is the idea for shalom. Everything is going to be shalom. And there are now people on this planet who know a little bit of what that is like because you have experienced it. God's champion has come and he has made a peace. And he's extended that peace to you. And you now enjoy that peace with God. And because you enjoy that peace with God, you have that peace with one another. And God has a mission for these people who now live on this broken planet with this new revelation. You are to go everywhere in that kingdom of darkness and you are to be lights. And as you go into the kingdom of darkness as lights, you are to announce this shalom and to make it available to everybody that is in that kingdom of darkness because God wants to rescue more people out of that darkness. And for a long time, I thought, you know, maybe what Paul's talking about here is that we have the light. You know, it's like we, we walk somewhere and we go into a dark room and we have a flashlight in our hand or we have some kind of a lantern in our hand and we're shining that light so that it, you know, it, it, it you know, dispels the darkness. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying you have a flashlight in your hand. He's saying you are the flashlight. You are that light. It's not like you, you've got to go get the light and pick up the light and take it with you. You are yourself the light. You are God's lamp. You are God's light, and he is dispelling you all over the darkness. I mean, think about it for just a moment. If somehow or another we could turn off every light in this room and cover every sort of door and, and every window in this room, this room would, would experience, and everybody in this room would experience pitch darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where all the light has been removed and, and you hold your hand in front of your face and you can't see anything and, and you can almost feel the darkness. Spiritually, that's the picture that Paul is painting here. The world is like that. And all of a sudden, into the room comes a light. And it sits way over in the back. And you look over there, and in that little section, the darkness is dispelled. And then you look around over here, and there's another one that's sitting right over there. And you, and you look, and, and all of a sudden, around that little area, there's darkness is gone. The function of light is to dispel darkness. Darkness and light cannot coexist, and darkness does not overcome light. And that's just a, a sort of a, a little human illustration explain to you what God is up to. As, as you now are 
lights. You're not just holding lights. You yourself are light. You used to be darkness. You are light, Paul says. Now he's sending you out into all of this darkness, and you're to walk. You're to live your life in such a way that, that people in that darkness are saying, I want that light. Now, as you go into that darkness, that darkness is not neutral. That darkness is moral. There are very powerful, wicked beings who control all of that darkness and who animate all of that darkness and who are determined to damage the entire universe because of that darkness and they want people in that darkness. And so when you come as light in that darkness, you become enemy number one. And so Paul says, as you come into that darkness and you do what you've been reading about in Ephesians 1 through 5, you can expect ruthless and relentless opposition all the time in every arena and in every corridor of your life. And it's spiritual opposition. Paul says to the Corinthians, don't think of this as flesh and blood, although maybe flesh and blood people are going to actually be the instrument. The real enemy in all of this is not flesh and blood. It's not human. It is spiritual. There is a spiritual enemy who is coming against you. And Paul has given you two amazing means to go into that darkness and navigate all of that safely. And the first of those is this armor that we have been talking about. The six pieces of this armor that our champion, Jesus Christ, won and wore for us and now has extended to us. But the second thing is this section here, beginning in chapter uh, 6, verse 18, where in addition to the armor, there is also now victory-winning, spirit-enabled praying. And that was certainly practiced by Christ. Don't miss this connection that Paul is making here between the two. He is connecting armor and praying together. In other words, we could say it this way. When you go as light into that darkness and into that hostile terrain, you need protection. You need weaponry. You need something that is going to cut through the darkness, that is going to cut through the spiritual bondage, that is going to release people from all of that bondage. You need a sword. You need a shield. You need a helmet. You need a breastplate. And so all of these pieces of armor were won for us by Jesus Christ, and they were worn by him as he pierced the darkness himself. So we need the armor. But sometimes when we wear the armor, we still suffer defeat because we are missing the other piece. God says you need two things as you stand and withstand the devil. You need this armor and you need this praying. If all you have is the armor, it's not enough. We could say it this way. You can't go into that realm with all, with, without the armor, but if all you have is the armor, it's not enough. There's something that has to be going on as you wear that armor into that context, and it's praying. Because of the importance and the difficulty of their mission, Paul has already been praying for them two different times in this letter. 
Paul says, look, I know what you're up to. I know that in the city of Ephesus, you are the center of all of this negative attention. There is ruthless opposition. There is relentless resistance. People are wondering about all the negative things that are happening in the city, and they're attributing them to you because you no longer worship the gods, and you no longer follow the Ephesian ways. And so I know the, 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 the pressure you're under, and I know the, the, the temptation that is before you to sort of water down this message. And so I'm praying, and two different times in Ephesians, Paul has prayed for them. In chapter 1, that God would enlighten them so that they would see the truth about what was really going on around them. And in chapter 3, that God would energize them and that he would enable them so that they could live as lights in this darkness under all of that pressure. So Paul says, now I know that you have armor, but I've also been praying for you as you wear that armor. And then he's going to ask them to pray for him because of his own difficult situation. Paul says, just like I've been praying for you, I need you to pray for me. Because just like you have a difficult situation in the kingdom of darkness where you are, I have difficulty in the kingdom of darkness where I am. And by the way, you have difficulty in the kingdom of darkness where you are. And so what Paul is saying here that seems so remote from us is actually immediately accessible to us and inherently important to us. So at the very success of our mission as Christian soldiers, as warriors for the gospel, we need our armor and we need this kind of praying. And so Paul takes three verses. I mean, nowhere else in this section does he give this amount of space to any one of the pieces of armor? This ought to tell you something about this praying. So what I'd like to do is I'd I'd like to look at four things about the praying, and then I'd like to make an application to us as a church. Here they are. Number one, when you look at this text, you see a strong exhortation to gospel praying. You see a strong exhortation to gospel praying. Look at verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I mean, Paul uses very compelling language here. I mean, he, he devotes the amount of space that we just noted, but he, he, he speaks with deep urgency. He speaks with compelling language. He uses what, what, we, what we would call as, as, you know, if you were a literary person and you were looking at the grammar of this text, he is using imperative language, very strong imperative language. He's, he's looking at you, it's as though he's sitting us down and he's saying, now I want you to get this. Don't, as you get ready to go out into battle, as you get ready to head out into that kingdom of darkness, I know what's waiting for you out there. I know the attacks that are coming. I've been under those attacks, and I want you to get this. You need to pray. There must be a commitment on your part to pray, and it's not just sort of the kind of praying maybe we've grown accustomed to in our own Christian worldview. It's, it's the kind of praying that goes along with being alert. It's the kind of praying that goes along when, when you know that you are about to head into a massive conflict 
or a massive battle, and you don't know where the enemy is. You don't know what weaponry he has. All you know is that you are walking into a very heated part of the battle, and you need to be alert, and you need to be in constant communication with someone who can help you. I don't know if you've ever watched any footage from World War II where, where men were being offloaded from boats onto beaches. And then they were just trying to run up those beaches and trying to find any place where they could take cover. And if you've watched any of those kinds of footages, as those men are, uh, particularly the historical ones, as those men are running up those beaches, they are literally being mown down by, mowed down by the enemy who's up on the hills and up on the cliffs, and, and they are just mowing those men down. And sometimes as you go into the kingdom of darkness, it feels that way. And you look at those men and they have helmets and they have bulletproof vests and they have weaponry and it's still, they just get mown down. And it's like, God, I'm going into that kind of warfare. What is going to help? I have this armor, but is it enough? And Paul says, no, it's not enough. You need to know this. This is Paul talking. You need to know this. You need the kind of praying that you pray with all alertness as you move into warfare ground. Remember what we said at the very beginning of the series? Most Christians in our, in our context do not think of life as a spiritual battle. We don't live in a war, in a sort of a warfare mindset. We, we, we kind of know that there's this war going on, but it's like super far away and the missionaries go and sometimes they get, they get martyred. And so we know that the war is like way, way over there, but we really don't think that we're in it. Life for us is about our house. It's about our car. It's about our kids. It's about our job. It, you know, hey, what are we going to get our kids for Christmas? I mean, the stress right now is, man, I, I ordered it and it's not coming and, and Amazon's whatever. And then last week the cloud went out and my little vacuum's not vacuuming like it should. And, and, and you know, that's where we're at. And that's where the vast majority of people living in this country are. And Paul says, let me just pull it all up from you. Let me just open your eyes. You are surrounded by a kingdom of darkness. And in that kingdom, there is this massive army of wicked spiritual beings. And they are coming at you. And while you're worried about your little vacuum that didn't work because the cloud went out and you're trying to figure out how am I getting my kid a Christmas present because, you know, the the supply chain is broken, these enemies are coming in like a horde and they are determined to defeat you. And the church needs, this is Paul saying, the church needs to wake up. You are in your context and in your culture just like the Ephesians. You are in a spiritual battle that is going on every day around you. And and, and you are the object, the target of this incredibly strong, wicked enemy that is determined to knock you down and to knock you out. And Paul says, you have armor. But you also need to pray. This is an urgent, compelling command that Paul is talking about. 
And it's not just you praying by yourself. It is, it is, I mean, when you start looking at this, this is written to a corporate body. There is this compelling need, Paul is saying, to pray corporately together. All of this section is addressed in the plural. I mean, Paul is talking to people, and it's not like you personally, although we have to do it individually. He's talking to a body. He is saying to the church, you need to pray. You need to wear your armor. You need to go into this battle. Now, if you lived in the city of Ephesus, this language would have just been native to you because when you were a small group of people against the entire city, there was a bonding that came together. And so you just immediately, when when Paul was talking, you're like, okay, this is us. You know, when you're under battle, your unit is your family, your cohort. That's who you hang with. That's who you care about. When, when one of them gets injured on the battlefield, you're not leaving until you bring them with you. There is a corporateness to this. You know what's happened to the American church? It's become very individual. You know, church is, church is what I do on Sunday. It's what I show up to. You know, oh, yeah, 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 it's the family of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the household of God. Oh, yeah, 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 we're part of that church. But for the most part, we live very individual lives. We live by ourselves, we do by ourselves, we, we pray for ourselves. Oh yeah, and we go to church and we give a little bit of our money, but the rest of our money we do whatever we want with it and we have become very, very individualized people in this battle. God says, no, wait a minute. I put a church in that location and I put another church in that location. I didn't put just one person there. Maybe it started with one person, but I put a body there and a body there and a body there and a body there and you bodies need to be praying together and fighting together and doing life together. The armor isn't just individual, it's corporate. And of course it has to be done in our individual lives. And so there is this compelling corporateness to what Paul's talking about here, and think about how that breaks down very quickly in our own lives. You know, we, 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 as I said, we are very individually wired. Think about the comprehensiveness of this. Notice the, the little word all in this text. Look at verse 18, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. I mean, Paul is actually broadening out our understanding of this kind of praying. It isn't this individual praying that says, God, you know, I have this little need over here and I need you to meet it and I got this thing over here I really like you to do and I really feel like you should be doing that and this over here, that's, that's not the kind of praying that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a comprehensive approach to praying at all times, with all kinds of prayers. I mean, just the immensity of it, with all vigilance for all saints. And so there is this exhortation that Paul has given. But what does it actually look like when a church does it? And so Paul says, let me give you an explanation. That's the second thing I want you to notice here. There's an explanation. This is not just perfunctory praying. You know, sometimes we get together and, you know, we start church. And, well, you can't start church without praying. That's like the first thing you got to do. So did we really start church? Your pastor forgot to pray? Maybe we didn't start church. 
Oh, no, no, we started praying. Yeah, yeah, no, no, actually he did pray. I forgot, he prayed. So we're good, we're good. We started church. Church has started. And I'm kind of mocking that a little bit because sometimes that's how we think about prayer. Prayer is like the thing we do. It's the, but, it's the start button. You know, as, I, as, as we get going, well, let's just have a little word of prayer and then we'll get going. And then, so we, we pray or, you know, it's the thing we do so that we don't choke on our food. Have you ever eaten unblessed food? That's potentially dangerous. You know, what do you do when you're at a Mexican restaurant, though, and you got the chips? Do you pray for those or do you wait? Like, are you pre-chip or post-chip prayers? You know, where do you put that? It's like the thing we do before we do the thing we're going to do. And Paul says, now, wait a minute. That is not at all what I'm talking about when I'm talking about prayer. Prayer isn't just like the preliminary thing we do to get it started. It's not the starting gun at the race. You know, it's not the buzzer that gets the game going. Prayer is so much more. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to tell you what prayer is marked by as he explains it. The kind of praying Paul has in mind is marked by consistency. It's marked by consistency. With all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the Spirit. It's marked by consistency. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, what I mean by that is that it is our consistent practice and it is our constant conversation. All the time. It doesn't mean that all we do is pray. It means that we don't do anything without praying. It's a running conversation with God. And, and it's, our, our, our day is punctuated with all kinds of praying. Prayers of confession. I mean, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I thought that. I'm sorry I did that. Adoration. God, you are so good. I, I'm looking out the window and there's this magnificent sunrise or this beautiful. I mean, God, you are so good. Celebration. God, I'm so thankful to belong to you. Thanksgiving. Petition. Crying out for help. Provision. Protection. Forgiveness. Mercy. Short prayers. Long prayers. Formal and informal praying. All throughout your day, your day should be punctuated by a running conversation with God. It is to be the consistent practice of a Christian soldier. And then it is to be marked by fervency and alertness. The word alert here is a rare term. It's it's a word that means to stay up all night, watching, guarding. Somebody said, hey, you know what? I happen to know something that tomorrow night there's a group of people and they're making a plan and they're going to come to your house and they're going to do something. Um, I remember as a, a teenager, and I'm not going to like incriminate myself here, but I was in high school and uh, uh, there was a certain night of the year where we would go out and we would prank people. Um, and I'm not suggesting you should do that, all right? There are things that you confess and you forsake, and that's one of them. But it's a good illustration. So you, you plan to prank people, and there was this one guy that, wo- that worked in our school that we loved to prank. And I mean by prank, it was like, you know, let's go egg his house or something like that. And he got word that we were coming. And so he made preparations. He got um, like an airsoft gun. And he made little traps around his house. And then he spent the night in a tree. 
sort of next to his house, waiting for us so that if we came, he could pelt us. And so he heard we were coming, and he made preparations, but we heard that he heard, and so guess what? We didn't come. (laughs) And he spent the night in a tree. We came another night. (laughs) So what's the point of that dumb story? The point of that dumb story is, He stayed up all night on the alert, and this is exactly what Paul's saying we're to do. The kind of praying we're doing, this running conversation with God, is is to be watchful and vigilant because you know that at some point there is an enemy coming against you. You don't know where he is coming from. You don't know what he's coming with. You just know he's coming, and you are constantly on the alert, and you are praying, God, help me to spot. God, help me to know. Help me to recognize. Help me to avoid. Help me to see. There's this vigilance. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about on the last night of his life when he talked to his disciples and he said to them, keep watching, keep praying. Why? So that you would not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A clear and present danger was upon these men. And what happened? They slept. And then it is to be marked by selfless specificity, be on the alert with all perseverance perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, Paul says, look, when you pray, it needs to be praying for the saints. And, and, And he had an example of this in a man named Epaphras. Epaphras came from the church at Colossae. He was sent out by that church on a battle mission with the Apostle Paul. But he didn't forget his family back home. He was reassigned from his fighting unit to Paul's fighting unit, but as he was with Paul on the battlefront that Paul, where Paul was, he didn't forget that all the people back at Colossae were also being under attack. And this is what he did. Paul said to him, uh, about him in Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect, fully assured of the will of God. That brings me to the third thing. How in the world am I going to get the energy and the enablement for this? What is the enablement? Where is the enablement for prayer that, that wins spiritual victories in this kind of context? And Paul's answer to that is this. You're going to get the energy to pray from the same place you get the energy to stand. You're going to get the same play, the same strength. You're going to get the strength you need from the same place to pray. You're going to get the strength you need to pray from the same place that you get the strength you need to do everything else in your life. You're going to get that strength from the Holy Spirit. And that's why he talks about praying in the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God who enables and energizes our prayer. Why? Because he controls us. He fills us. He indwells us. We are, we are governed by him. And then, you know, it's not just that he enables us to pray. Sometimes we're in the middle of the battle and we honestly don't know what to pray for. It's like, what do we pray for? I mean, here, here's the scenario and, and, and I, I don't know what to pray for. And, and Paul says in, in Romans, just pray and let the Holy Spirit interpret that praying to God. And then the Holy Spirit strengthens you. 
strengthens you as you pray. Jude chapter, or Jude chapter 1 verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. How? Praying in the Holy Spirit. When you pray to God through the Spirit, it isn't just like empty words that go out of your mouth. You know, sometimes as, uh, in, in theological classes, um, you know, I've been asked the question by a young theologian, it's like, well, what's the point of praying if God is sovereign? If God is sovereign and he's already decided things, then what does my praying do and why even pray? You ever wondered that, by the way? I don't think it's just young theologians. I think it's just everyday people like us sometimes when we wonder that. Has God already decided? And so I'm spending this hour praying, and and why do that if if this is already decided? And the point of praying, folks, is not to get God to change his mind about things. Jude is telling you that the point of praying is to build something in you. Prayer is the means by which God builds your faith. Because prayer is your constant declaration that, God, I'm not strong enough for this. I'm not wise enough from this. I don't know what to do here. I don't have the wisdom I need. I trust you. I trust that you know. I trust that you will do. I trust that your strength is best. How does our faith get built up? And one of the answers the New Testament gives you is this, by your praying. We typically think of praying as talking to God and trying to get God on our page or trying to get ourselves on God's page. And, and there is no question that God invites us to come and make our request to him. There's no question about that. And we shouldn't feel guilty when we go to God and we pray for our brother Troy and say, God, would you please heal Troy? Or we pray for our, our folks in our church who are suffering cancer and other illnesses and say, Lord, please heal them. But the point of praying is not just that. The point of praying is that as we pray and the Spirit energizes our praying, our faith is being built up. And frankly, that's maybe why some of us, myself included, are so weak. We have all this knowledge. I mean, can I just be straight up with us? Most of us have more Bibles on our shelf than the early church had in an entire congregation. We have study Bibles that have notes. We have uh, journals we've been keeping. We hear preaching. We've been hearing preaching our whole life. We've been taking notes on that preaching. We read books. We have radio programs. There are Bible teachers we listen to on the radio. We have so much wealth when it comes to the information of Scripture. That's not our problem. We lack, we lack strength. So I'm just going to read my Bible more. Praise God. Read your Bible. Listen, men and women, read your Bible a lot. Read it all the time. Read it every day. You should. But Jude says, if you want to build up your faith, you need to pray. Can I just ask this question? I'm asking myself, in case this is not pointed to you. Could it be the reason we're weak? is we don't pray. I mean, I'm talking about the kind of praying Paul's talking about here. And that brings us to the final thing this morning. And so, okay, if that's the kind of praying we need to do, what does it look like? What is, what is the object and the content of the kind of praying we're talking about? And Paul says, all right, let me give you an example of this. I've been praying for you, and now I need you to pray for me. 
I've been praying for you two times in this letter. I mean, in six short chapters, I devoted half of two chapters to praying for you. So I've been praying for you. And now I need you to pray for me in the same way. And if you want to know what to pray for, go back and think through what I've been praying to God for about you. In those two prayers, not one time does Paul pray for relief for the Ephesians. Not one time does God pray that everything would go well for them. He prays for much bigger objectives. And it's no surprise that when he says to them, I am desperately in need of your prayers for me, that the content of his requests are much bigger than, hey, can you just pray that God will get me out of prison here or that these chains won't be so rough on my wrists and that somebody will remember to send me food and that somebody will hang out with me and that all will go well. None of those things are mentioned by Paul in his prayer. So what does he pray for? Well, he wanted them to pray that God would give him clarity to explain the content of the gospel. He wanted him to pray that God would give him boldness to articulate the demands of the gospel, and he wanted them to pray that God would give him courage because of the consequences that could potentially come when he spoke the gospel. You say, well, whoa, 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 Paul, what are you talking about? Paul had an amazing opportunity, but it didn't look like an opportunity. Paul was an ambassador in chains, and he was on his way to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he was going to be brought in front of the tribunal of the most powerful man in the Roman Empire. He was going to stand in court before Caesar, a man named Nero. And the entire Roman world had come to understand that this man, Caesar, Nero at the time, was their Lord. And he was the savior of the empire. And into his presence was going to be dragged a Jewish rabbi. And he had a very different announcement to make. In essence, the message he was going to articulate would go something like this. Nero, I pray for you like God told me to pray for you. But I want you to know something. You are not the Lord. There is another Lord, and his name is Jesus. And you are not the savior of Rome or the empire. There is another savior who is saving people out of your dark kingdom. And his name is Jesus. Now, how do you think that would go over in ancient Rome? In the courtroom of Nero, in front of all of those gathered there. Paul says, now here's what I need. I need you to pray that God would put words in my mouth for that moment that would be clear. And I need you to pray that God would give me the ability to be candid about the demands of that gospel. 
and not to water those demands down, to literally be able to look at Nero and say, Nero, this isn't just for the slaves in your kingdom, and this isn't just for the plebes in your kingdom, and this isn't just for the nobles in your kingdom. This is for you. You have to repent of your sins. You have to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And then pray for courage. That's the kind of praying Paul's talking about. So, did it work? I mean, did it work? Let me end with three texts that I think will answer the question. First text is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. Listen, listen to Paul tell what happened to him when he stood in front of Nero on the day that he went before him as an ambassador and changed. Here's what he said. At my first defense, in other words, the first time I stood there, because that wasn't the only time he got dragged in there. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. So here's this ambassador, and nobody's there with him. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Here's a little group of Ephesians that were praying for Paul. Nobody came, nobody stood, nobody was there for that defense. But by the end of it, Paul had declared the gospel and Paul had been rescued from the lion's mouth. Text number two, Philippians 1, where Paul recounts the use of his chains and what God did through those chains. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. What are you talking about, Paul? Hey, there are people who have come to Christ because of my imprisonment. And they are becoming bold to speak the word of God without fear. That's an amazing thing that happened. And then here's the final text in Acts chapter 28, where Paul says, let me tell you what God did when Nero tried to restrict me. Let me tell you how God unrestricted the gospel. And in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31, talks about how Paul stayed two full years in rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. You say, wow, how did that happen? A little group of people in a little church in Ephesus got together and said, you know what? The apostle Paul's been praying for us. We need to pray for him. And they did. What do you think God would do if another small group of Christians at a little church in the outskirts of Greenville, South Carolina? Not well known in the ecclesiastical landscape, just a little group of people, common, ordinary people facing all the struggles we face, all the pain we face. What do you think would happen if a little group of people at Palmetto Baptist Church started praying this way? What do you think would happen if we started to pray this way for the men of our church? For the women of our church? What if we started to pray this way for our missionaries? 
What if we prayed this way for our pastors? What if we prayed this way for our marriages? What, what if, you know, we pray for, well, God, Lord, please, you know, we need, we need a better offering or we need this building or we need this land and we need all of those things. And as we get into the new year, you're going to hear us talk about all of those things. But you know what we really need? We need a small little church to get on their needs and pray. Say, God, pray for our marriages in our church. Marriages are under attack. I'm telling you folks, your marriage in this church is not safe. Don't think because you're a member of Palmetto Baptist Church and you get to worship in the worship that honors God that we do here and the praying that we do. Don't think for a minute your marriage is safe or your kids are safe. Think of the immense brokenness that's all around us. Think of people that are captive and homeless. I mean, just drive up and down the streets here. And here you are, and we are in this little place, and then we get in our car, and you drive 30 minutes to home, and you drive 30 minutes another way, and we we go our ways, and, and we forget that we are a body. What if this body were to just pray for our college students? They're about to go home. How much praying do you give to our college ministry? Well, they're great. I mean, we got there's like a hundred plus of them, and man, I'm so thankful for uh, you know Pastor Mike and Bert and those that work there. Yeah, okay. But are you praying for them? I mean, have you ever stopped to think of what God could do in that ministry of college students? I mean, the next generation of great Christian impactors is coming out of that group. Are you praying for that? Have you thought about praying for our seniors? They're the backbone of this church. They are, they are the ones who show up year after year after year. They have the wisdom. They've walked in places where you haven't walked yet. Some of you have never taken a kid to an emergency room. You have no idea what that's like. There are people in this church who have. And they have an amazing ministry for us. Have you prayed for that group? I mean, I could just go on and on. Have you prayed for the teens? Have you prayed for our children? Every, every Sunday we bring our children up here. And have you thought, I mean, here is all of this innocence at five, eight, nine years of age. What are they going to be like when they're 18? How many of them will have walked away from their faith? How many of them will have grown hardened in their heart? How many of them will just say, you know what? This is my mom and dad's religion and I'm just not there. How many of those precious young people that we pray for every Sunday are going to have that experience? And you know what? We need to be on our knees as a church asking God for that. What do you think would happen if we took this admonition seriously to pray at all times, with all praying for God's people to do God's work by God's strength. Lord, thank you for this text. I feel I haven't even done it justice this morning. I pray that you would take my little words and Whatever is not true, whatever is not right, whatever is not just, whatever is not 
accurate to the text before us that you would eliminate that from our minds and help us to zero in on the words that matter, your words. And may they change us, may they transform us, may they energize us as we do your work for your glory in our place. In Jesus' name, amen.